0: Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. And we are here in season three of the Being Known Podcast, where we are going through uh, Dr. Desire's new book, (laughs) The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. And we started this, this season three talking about how we are a people of longing, a people of desire. And mm. uh, we are fast forwarding to today where we are talking about how we are mm. a people of grief. Um, mm. And uh, this chapter, Kurt, was just packed, so packed full mm. of just great stuff, mm. Uh, mm. you know, really you know, grief is obviously and 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 trauma as we're going to be talking about are deep and serious and sometimes sad and you know hmm. hard subjects to talk about. But I hmm. I love the way you handle it in this chapter. Hmm. Um, hmm. I I really like to take notes and underline things that stand out to me in hmm. in books, and I have to say <laughs> that I went back to relook at the chapter to start thinking about what we wanted to highlight today and this in the show and uh, I, the problem is I've underlined everything in the chapter <laughs> like I literally have pages where the whole page is underlined it's like it's not very helpful to go back to that <laughs> but, but it is a testament to your writing mm. and um, mm. and to how much I'm getting out of the book so so thank mm. you for that mm. um, yeah you know yeah. You, you start mm. the, the, the this chapter talking about a story. Mm. Um, and you, the, the, uh, Tara story, um, mm. obviously not her real name, but, um, can mm. you share a little bit of that story? Mm. I think it's a good place for us to start today.
1: Yeah. Tara's life was one that in many respects was, you know, as, as we've, we've come out of this, the chapter before we've come out of the talking about that we are people who are longing to be known in order to create beauty. We're looking for beauty everywhere. And in many respects, there were many elements of Tara's life that were reflective of beauty, I mean, many elements of it, when she walked into my office. The critical elements of her story begin when she was a teenager and she had uh, been part of a church in which her youth pastor had taken advantage of her sexually. Mm. And of course, this is uh, not an uncommon phenomenon. I wish we could say that this is a rare event, Uh, but it's not an uncommon thing for people who are in the business of doing the work of intimacy. I mean, this is the business of the church. Uh, This is what it means to care for people's souls. And so we naturally and commonly become connected to people in deep and lasting and meaningful ways, all for the purpose of good things. But as we've said, evil's mission is to be parasitic on those missions for goodness and beauty. And that's what was happening here. And so this youth pastor uh, took advantage of her and, as it turned out, others actually but it didn't come out at the time. It wasn't until she um, had real challenges when she was in college, and she eventually started to see a counselor and worked really hard with that counselor. But in the course of this time, all the stories came out about her experience having been in middle in in high school. There was a lot of work that was done in and around all that. The youth pastor themselves was summarily dismissed. From the church. And the church itself, from what I could understand from her story, it wasn't in our part of the country, it was at a different part of the country, but we're um, the church had really done a lot of work to try to do right by these families and these children, who these women, young, young women who had been taken advantage of. What brought Tara into my office, however, she was now married with three kids later in her 20s. She met her husband. And they had worked really hard. She made him aware of what she was in the middle of. And he had also uh, mentioned to her that earlier in his life, in his early 20s, he'd had a real challenge with pornography, but he had done a lot of work with this. And by the time they got married, they were both in, they were both positioned toward marriage coming from places of healing from all this trauma Hmm. and all this grief that had taken place. But what brought her into my office, she was now in her 30s. They'd been married for a number of years and they had three kids. And what brought her into my office was that two things happened. One was that her husband had had some real challenges and had fallen back into the use of pornography and had even solicited sex. And, um, of course, you know, we don't have words for that but uh and but, but he you know what he was really trying to do was trying to work this out he was he 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 wanted to come clean he wanted to do the work he he knew that this was challenging he wanted to, what was really painful was that around the same time she heard from a friend that this former youth pastor had somehow managed to make his way into a different city and into a different church congregation where as an Pastor of some kind in that in that church congregation, he once again had been found to be and was accused of sexual manipulation and abuse of people in the congregation. And so, again, I don't have words for this. And you know, we um, you know this day we are we are recording on this Friday, the day after we've gotten news of these explosions mm-hmm. um, in Kabul and how many have been killed and casualties and so forth and so on. And, and, you know, we think of those kinds of scenarios, we think of scenarios of war and death and grief is in some respects to be expected, although never any easier, or is it ever good, but we don't expect this in the church the church is not the place where we expect this kind of trauma and this kind of grief. I mean, the church, if if we if we accept the notion that it's a hospital, at one level we would like to believe that it's not really all that surprising that there are so many people who are so sick. Right. And that we're, you know, we are we're just casualties that are there, and we're we're all trying to become well. But what we're not anticipating is for any of the doctors to take advantage of the patients. Right. And we we don't really, you know, and, and so so the work that we began to do, that I began to do with Tara eventually led toward her, as we will talk about in later episodes, we'll talk about her becoming part of one of these confessional communities. But I have to say, Pepper, even as I'm sitting with her, as I'm hearing these words, you know, it's kind of like, and this might be overdoing it, but if 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 we as caregivers are, if we allow ourselves to imagine us being lifeguards, imagine us being lifeguards at the beach and somebody's drowning and we want to be present with them to be helpful. But then we ourselves are just overwhelmed by the very same waves. I mean, that's kind of what it felt like. Uh, not that I was being, but at the time, like, like I felt it in my chest, I felt it in my whole body. Like how, how am I going to be helpful? And of course, this is what evil would love for us to believe that things are so bad that nothing can be done. And of course, this is pretty much where Tara found herself, in this place of grief, of loss, of trauma. And, you know, we talk about these kinds of stories, and one of the things that we are tempted to do in response to hearing stories like this is we are tempted to imagine that unless my story is like that unto Tara's, then, what do I have to complain about? What do I have to talk about? What grief do I have to describe? And we're going to talk a little bit more about the mechanics of grief and loss here in just a moment. But I think that right off, you know, most of us are not having most of our days shattered by the kinds of stories that we just heard about with Tara. Now, many of us who are listening have stories that are just like this or worse. In some way, shape or form, it, it can come in many, many hues and shapes and sizes and colors. For those of us who can't right now access a story like Tara's, what I want us to be aware of though is that because we don't, then we think that our grief and our loss and our trauma isn't really that big of a deal. Because how could I complain about my loss when there are the terrors in the world?
0: Right, right. We have a uh, yeah. tendency to minimize our own grief because we we empathize, sympathize with larger things like this that happen to somebody, and you, it's almost you're almost embarrassed to bring up your own issues.
1: Right, right. You know, it it it, it brings us uh, to to these to this notion of like, well, you know, we lose things all the time, but what is it about loss that's you know just losing though what what makes something uh what makes something like grief strickening about a loss
0: mm-hmm.
1: and what is it and and does it have to be earth shattering in order for it to be grief strickening and the answer is actually no we we like to talk about grief as the thing that we start to feel and of course with you know Kubler Ross's work around grief and loss and death and all dying and all the kinds of things like what what does it mean for us to lose things mm-hmm. in this in this process? And there is this stage of shock and of anger and of bargaining and of like reimagining and, some, and then reconciliation that, that come out of that. But one of the ways that we talk about it in a in a fairly succinct way is that I'm going to experience grief any time I experience a loss of something to which I have a fairly significant emotional attachment. Hmm. You know, in the, in the book, I, I tell this story of, like, I, I I like fountain pens. And I got introduced to these, uh, you know, a number of years ago. And I have, you know, four or five of these fountain pens. And I, you know, you can, I, I don't spend as much money as one could spend. Like, you can go in the catalog yeah, and find, like, crazy. dude, like, you, you could buy a car right. for what you could spend. right Now, you know, maybe not a Tesla, but you could buy a car for some of the money that you would spend on some of these pens. It wasn't that kind of money. But I love what a fountain pen feels like in my hand and as it hits the paper and all the things. And uh, I lost one of these pens. Mm -hmm. And like, you'd think I'd lost a child. Yeah. In terms of what was going on internally for me. Now, of course, I'm aware enough to know that I'm going to like, I'm not going to say this to anybody because I don't want anybody to think like, Kurt, it's just a pen.
0: It's just a pen. But we are recording, you know that, right? (laughs) And, And you've also written about it in your book. So the cats out of the bag. <laughs>
1: <laughs> What's wrong with me? Right. <laughs> oh, I wasn't supposed to mention this.
0: <laughs> I appreciate you mentioning it, though, because it does help. Uh, put things in perspective. So continue with, yeah. Yeah. Continue with the story. Yeah.
1: Well, I I think it, I think it, it, it highlights, it, it highlights that like, well, it's just a pen, but you know, for me, uh, as, as I do write about in the book, for me, that pen is associated with particular work that I do. Like in my journal, I only use a fountain pen to write my journal. Yeah. there's something about the connection to the paper and the instrument and so forth, that it's not just the words that you write. It's not just the process that's going on in your head. It's the whole endeavor in that. I, I'm, I believe that the work of doing the work in my journal is work that God is trying to construct. There's a, there's, it's a, it's an artistic endeavor.
0: Yeah. In the attachment that you have to it is where the grief comes yeah. in. Like, so two days ago, I accidentally left my <laughs> AirPod pros in my pocket and washed my, pants okay so so I'm, looking, I'm not alone right i'm not alone now i'm not a. am not attached i'm attached to the 200 bucks i gotta spend to go buy a new pair <laughs> but i'm not really a, i mean i use them every day all day long like right. you do obviously right. yeah um and it was like ah you know but but it wasn't that wasn't grief mm-hmm. a friend years ago gave me uh one of his pipes Uh, Oh, right. And he, he then, he has since passed away. This, this was, you know, um, I loved this pipe. I just was, Mm. you know, Mm. meant Mm. so much to me. And then, you know, with Mm. a pipe like you, with the pen and the paper, you pack the pipe, you, you know, there's a whole ritual about it and all that. And I'm thinking about my friend when I'm doing it and I lost the pipe Mm. and that was, Mm. That was very mm. similar, I'm sure, mm. to the mm-hmm. feeling that you had mm. when you lost the pen. And it's all about attachment, right? It's right. all about... Right.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, we, 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 uh, we, we like to talk about this notion that when I lose a thing to which I have this emotional connection, right, that, that connects me to people, right? The pipe isn't just a pipe. It is a conduit to your friend. Yes. And... Like my pen is a conduit to so many things in my journal, but that have emerged like, you know, you and I have a conversation and the next day I'm writing about it in my journal hmm. or I meet with my spiritual director and I'm writing about it in my journal. It is a conduit to people. Yeah. And so in this way, you know, you lose it and it's like somebody has just like, you know, pulled pulled my forefinger out of my hand and with no anesthesia, it you, you just goes. And I, w- I want us all to be aware that what, what's significant about this is that we often grow up in systems, in families, in which our attachment patterns are such that the beauty that we've talked about so far, that we, that we long to create, that begins in the creation of relationships, and that extends into enabling and, and encouraging those relational uh, experiences to prompt and encourage each of those children in our homes or the employees in our businesses or the students in our classroom or the members of the orchestra that we're conducting or whatever it is that we're doing, that we're in charge of, that we are encouraging them to also be agents of creation of beauty and goodness. All of that work that we do, we often aren't paying attention to the role that attachment plays. Hmm. And so when we lose things that we don't even know, that they represent such important things. And then we have this feeling of like, why like why like why am I feeling what I feel like? It's a pen for crying out loud. I mean, I did have that feeling like, like I'm aware that I'm missing the pen. Like, like, what the heck? Why what what and you're like, oh. Because this is this is you feeling like you're losing a part of Pepper, losing a part of David, losing a part of this group of men that I'm part of, losing part of my, my wife, right? There's, I'm, I'm having this felt sense of loss of connection of relationship. And, you know, in Tara's situation, one of the things that the trauma really revealed was not just this notion of the loss that she experienced of her innocence and of her being protected in the church and so forth and so on. But, you know, this wasn't a one-time event. This was something that went on over a period of time. And one wonders, how is it that Tara didn't immediately, the first time that something was going on, how is it that Tara didn't immediately go to her father and say, Dad, something happened today with this guy, and like I'm not okay? Yes. And how is it that the dad doesn't know immediately and the dad doesn't like do what fathers do? <laughs> now this is not throwing Tara under the bus or throwing the dad throwing her father under the bus, but the reality is that Tara had actually lost something from her father that she didn't know that she'd even lost. This is what happens in insecure attachment. We're losing things in those attachment processes that we don't even know, and we don't sense. We don't. We're not aware of the loss until later when something happens that reveals that. Oh, I lost something. I didn't receive something that I should have received. (laughs) I remember, you know, my father died when I was 17, and my attachment pattern was such that, you know, I I remember the day that he died. That Monday morning, that he died, nine o'clock in the morning. We're sitting in the Hospital waiting room, if, and the physician, the internist, comes out and informs us. And I, and like, I'm just aware that everybody else in the room is really, really, really upset. As as one, but I'm aware enough to know that like everybody's upset, and like I'm aware that I'm not. But I'm, but I'm like, like also observing this, and like aware that like I'm not quite sure what's happening here, right? And that was, that was true for a long time, and then. I graduated from high school, and my graduation, like, this thing just blindsided me. Because he wasn't there. He wasn't there. Yeah. And then I get married, and he's not there. And I have my first child. And then we have a son whose middle name is given for him. And grief circles back around, and you discover, like, I lost something I didn't even know I lost. And there are things that were taking place in Tara's life of loss that happened even before all the carnage. And so we sometimes lose things sequentially. But the challenge still is, are we actually paying attention to it in such a way that we can then name it so that Jesus can meet us even in the slightest places so that we're not comparing our losses to anyone else that's a danger the minute I start comparing my losses to the families who've just lost their sons in Kabul the minute I start to do that and minimize my losses my griefs I begin to practice not paying attention to them and then they're going to find me and overwhelm me because I've not had much practice knowing what to do with them.
0: Hmm.
1: When we were getting ready, you were uh, mentioning a story of your own
0: Yeah,
1: I'd love for folks to hear.
0: Yeah. I've shared on this podcast that my early career was as an actor in, in Los Angeles and pursuing big dreams and, and reaching many of them and, and having a lot of successes. And, and then sort of as, my, as I got older and my career uh, started to change, Hollywood is a is a city of youth, you know, and mm. um, the the roles start to.
1: I don't know why you're I don't know why you're not still there, right?
0: But... Exactly, the roles are uh, start to diminish as you get a little older. If you, if you haven't reached a certain, but even if you have, they start to diminish, and, and you know, and that, and for women, it's ten times worse. You know, let's mm. just acknowledge mm. that it just is, mm. Um, mm. but. You know the thing about Hollywood is a friend of mine used to say, you know, Hollywood is like a gold mining town, right? You're either mm-hmm. an inch away from a major strike or you're a mile and a half away from a dollar ninety-five, and it's almost <laughs> impossible to tell the difference. <laughs> I mean, so so you're holding on to this hope, right? Oh, and oh. and everything can change with one phone call. Yeah, like you know, for all of us, everything can change with one phone call, but it's usually that that usually means that something bad happened. Right. Mm -hmm. But like when you're Mm -hmm. in that world, everything can change for the better with one call, Mm -hmm. you know? And, Mm -hmm. and so having that sort of hope to hold on to. And so when we were getting ready to move out of state and back here to Kentucky, which I'm, I'm so thrilled that we have, I love it here and Mm -hmm. it's all, it's all good. Um, I had felt like, you know, even even building up to that time, that we made this move because I had let go of some of those dreams, I had let go of those <laughs> of those things. Um, <laughs> but when we got back here, I found myself grieving, mm. and it kind of mm. hit me out of nowhere because I thought mm-hmm. that I had, you know, let go,
1: and you, I you planned yeah, you, you, yeah. you could see what you were doing exactly you knew, like you, you,
0: yeah. yeah and uh, and and yet you know it was like, okay, you've really got to let go of these dreams because, Mm. you know, you're not in Kansas anymore or you're not in Mm. Hollywood anymore. You know, you can't, Mm. you you know, and so, uh, Mm. it was, it was kind of a difficult time for me,
1: you know, right. Grieving that loss. Right. Well, you know, in, in that story, Pepper really highlights for me, this sense of even, even when we, Do all of our homework ahead of time. Like we're gonna make the we're gonna make the decision. Yeah, yes, I I realize what I'm giving up, and I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna go do that, and then the grief finds you in ways that you just don't see coming. Like I I thought I was prepared for this, or I thought I'd taken care of this business. You know, one of the things that happens for us is, you know, I I think about, I I you know. I may have told this story before about, you know, this event that happened between me and my son Nathan where, you know, I I misbehaved as a father when he was in college and we had to work through this rupture. And, you know, it took me six months. Like, my grief, it it wasn't enough for me to say how sorry I was. It wasn't enough for me. I mean, he was in the process of forgiving me right away. But even so, it took me months because I would tell him how sorry I was and he would say, it's okay. I've forgiven you. We're going to, we're going to work through this. And two weeks later, it's just back in my head and Mm. I can't, it just comes back over and over and over again. And this is what evil of course wants to do, wants to compound grief. And like in Tara's story, she got set up for things, not intentionally, not consciously, but she was set up To have these kinds of things happen to her and her grief at what happened to her was then compounded and made more complex by the grief of discovering that she hadn't been protected, not just in that moment, but even before then. And we come to discover that when we lose things like pens, that if there's any other grief that has not been resolved, our griefs start to call to one another. Hmm. The grief that I'm experiencing today, the grief that I experienced three years ago but that I didn't resolve is being echoed. It's hearing its voice being called through the halls of my soul. And it comes running. And I wonder why am I so upset about a pen? Because as it turns out, it's not just about relationships. It's also not just about a pen. Right. It's about other things perhaps for us that have been precious that we've lost, that we haven't been able to retrieve calls to all kinds of things. And this is why we, you know, when we talk about trauma and how trauma really kind of is this, uh, event, I think it's important for us to talk about like, what do we, how do we define it? How do we talk about, how do we get our hands around it? That's important because we like to talk about trauma being something that shatters the lens through which we see our life. And that shattering can be like it was for Tara but the shattering can be in what, we might, what I might call, you know, m- micro moments, small moments. I, I tell folks, look, if you were to bruise your forearm, you know, because you you know hit it on a door jam going through or whatever, it's a small bruise, you don't really notice it, it's not that big of a deal. And if you see it a day or two later, you're like, oh, yeah, probably, yeah, I remember, you barely remember how it got there. But if you were to take a microscope, not even an electron microscope, if you were to take a regular microscope and if you were to, like, carve out the tissue that's just underneath the bruise and put it under the microscope under a slide and you were to look at it, carnage is all you would see. Hmm. Now, the reason that we don't think twice about it is because there's enough healthy tissue around it to buffer it and to bring healing, but it doesn't change the fact that even the smallest of bruise, bruises like leaves carnage in its wake. And so we discover that trauma does tend to shatter things, the real question has to do with the two features that make traumatic events eventually become what we experience to be traumatic experiences for us. For one to say I have been traumatized is different than saying I experienced a traumatic event. We can have two people can be in the same automobile, experience the same car accident, and one be traumatized and the other not be. What do we mean by that? We mean that for a trauma to be traumatizing, we would suggest that there are two things that are necessary. The first is that the person perceives, and this is really important, our perception is that I'm overwhelmed by the event. The event itself is overwhelming. It overwhelms my capacity to sense, image, feel, and think in a coherent fashion. I'm overwhelmed. That's my initial response that I'm overwhelmed. And the second is that I have no agency. I am unable to do anything about the felt sense of overwhelm. If I'm overwhelmed by the bookshelves that have fallen away from the wall and landed on me, this happened to our daughter. She's had a set of lockers that landed on her when she was in elementary school. But if I can yell to somebody down the hall and they come and they pick up the lockers, it is a traumatic event, but it's not traumatizing because I can, I have agency to do something about this. This is true for all kinds of things that we experience. And so when we find ourselves in any kind of event in which we are able to escape the event, in which we are able to find access to agency that can keep me back within my window of tolerance that we've talked a little bit about in the past, that capacity to shift back into the window of tolerance means that I'm not traumatized by the event. But for many of us, we have found even the smallest of moments to be overwhelmed. So for instance, we wouldn't think that a child being yelled at by their father or mother in public would necessarily be traumatizing. We would say like, oh, that's, you know, like, you know, unfortunately, like Sarah's dad is just, he's just a hard guy. But if you were to ask Sarah, her six-year-old self or her 14-year-old self, what was that like? We might discover that her emotional sense in that moment was that she was overwhelmed. And of course, she was able to tolerate it, right? It didn't kill her but she didn't have agency to do anything that would bring her back into her window of tolerance. And so she learns then to live outside the window of tolerance. She learns to live in this constant undercurrent state of fight or flight whenever she's got to talk to her dad. And this trauma, this way of acting in this way, it tends to shatter us. Now, trauma can happen in one of two ways that we talk about. The first form, trauma A, is what happens when we don't receive what we need to receive. This is the trauma of neglect. This is the trauma of being ignored. This is the trauma of not having my social engagement system activated. This is the trauma of what happens when, in Tara's case, her father was not coming to find her on a regular basis before any and all this started. Her father, who's not a bad guy. But because of his own story, he wasn't able to come to find her in ways that would enable her to be completely awakened to the danger of this youth pastor the moment that she even smelled it in the room. So nobody's being thrown under the bus here. These things kind of these things happen. So people who you know we 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 live and work with folks who you know we've adopted kids who've who've been in traumatizing uh, pre-adoption settings in which they weren't nurtured, and so there's the trauma of the absence of things that we need, kind of like what happens if we don't get vitamin C, we develop scurvy. And then there's trauma B, which is the form of trauma in which we actually have things that happen to us, happen to us that shouldn't happen. This could be anything from single events, a car accident, um, you know, a, 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 a significant medical crisis. Uh, it could be something that happens, you know, the, the death of a parent, a divorce. It could be a range of singular events, or it could be the ongoing course of multiple events. I, like for Tara, it was in the system. And so she wasn't just, you know, as far as her brain was concerned, she was well aware that even though it was only involving directly one person, the one person was representing a system. And so what she was pushing against was not just in her body in that moment with one person, her mind is pushing against an entire system, which she can't do. The other way that we talk about trauma is trauma form one, type one or type two, type one, again referring to single events, large single events. And type two can be these multiple kinds of events that happen. And of course, unless they stand out in our mind as being extraordinarily heinous, we tend to not think about them as being traumatic. But you know, what happens if you grow up in a house where your parent is continually critical of you? Now we might say, well, that's like that's not trauma. That's like That's grown up in this, you know, in the, in the Johnson's household, except just like the bruise, the collective capacity of what that person is then having to deal with is such that they practice not paying attention to their griefs because they don't have time, effort, energy, or space in which to do it. And if you collect enough bruises on your arm, at some point, somebody walks in and it's like, dude, like what, what is that? And you're like, oh, it's nothing. That's Nothing. So we hear Tara's story and we're not surprised at all that this is traumatic, but we could hear a lot of our stories in which we have practiced not paying attention to the small bruises, but have collectively over time taken their course and cost us dearly. And in the middle of trauma, one of the most important things that happens is the role of shame. Now, we talked about a lot of the features of shame in the book that I wrote, The Soul of Shame. But in, in this book, the, one of the primary things we're paying attention to is this notion of isolation. Shame, in order for it to flourish, requires isolation within our hearts and between me and you. I'm going to be isolated within my mind, that part of me that doesn't want to be ashamed. Of course, Tara is not telling anyone about what's happened to her when she was in high school. Right, But it doesn't just separate me from the part of me that I don't like. It also separates me from you because that means if I'm not telling you about the part of me that I'm feeling broken about, that puts more distance between you and me. And so we isolate, and we mostly isolate. We often isolate different parts of our mind, but one of the most important ways that we isolate, we isolate our right brain activity from our left brain activity. And so I can become really, really good. I mean, Tara was a good student. She went to school. She got like all these kinds, like she can work really hard, and I learned to cope with my grief by just doubling down on whatever it is else in life that is real that I'm really good at. I'm just going to work really, really hard at doing whatever the thing is that I'm really, really good at. And, of course, Tara was going to be a really good parent, and she was. And this notion that we separate and we become analysts and we see that, like, I'm going to function out of my left brain, my logical linear, that I'm going to do all the right things, but I ignore the part of me that does the feeling and the sensing and the imaging. And the further and further they get apart, the faster they move from each other. It's like John Foreman's words. From Switchfoot's song, I'm losing ground and gaining speed. This is what we do. And we practice ignoring them, what we might call micro traumas, these micro traumatization experiences that we have in all these, like the, the small slights, the cuts that we have from our, uh, from our spouses and from our, you know, from our parents and from our friends and all the things, all these kinds of things that we tend to then experience in such a way that it primes us to actually just make room for more of it. And of course, as this is, if this is what we are practicing as human beings, we collectively begin to do this, and then trauma and the grief that accompanies it, powered by the shame matrix that has woven its way throughout the entire system, creates systemic trauma. And it's a systemic trauma of violence. And there's nothing short of it, that violence is taking place in everything we do. We wouldn't imagine the bruise on our arm to be something of violence. Right. Until you put it under the microscope and you're like, holy crap. Like somebody just got the four by four and drove it right through the orchestra. And I know that as we're listening, it's possible, Pepper, that in our our conversation that others um, are having their own stories brought to mind where perhaps they've experienced trauma in this way their their grief that has been long been kept dormant uh they start to sense it feel it for some that grief starts to feel volcanic it starts to feel eruptive and you know we uh when we think about you know, there, there are a hundred different ways in which trauma and grief and the shame that accompanies it uh, shows up in our lives. Uh, in the book, um, and we can get to this in just a bit, we'll, we'll, we talk about why it is that sex is such a big part of this. Why, why, we talk, why, why do we highlight sex in this regard? And I would only say that um, one of the reasons why we pay so much attention to sex when it comes to trauma and grief and the shame that accompanies it is because sex is where it begins and ends. We were made male and female. We weren't made as paramecium. We were made as differentiated beings. And, we, and in being made male and female, we were being made with a vision for creativity. We were being made with a vision for beauty. And this beauty is created because a male and a female come together vulnerably, and not least of which because our sexual organs, you know, it's not like my hands. My hands, you know, my hands go through the day, like I don't have to put gloves on all the time, like I work in a dirty dishwasher, I work in my garden, I do all kinds of things, I don't don't worry about that. But we would never just expose ourselves, we don't expose our sexual anatomical parts because of their vulnerability. Because they are destined to be protected in order to create beauty and goodness. And that beauty and goodness and that vulnerability is, is fragile. And terror is fragile. And that's the very thing that was so horribly traumatized. And this is why sexual traumatization is such a big deal. And it is there where we foist some of our most awful violence. This is where, like no other place, beauty descends and devolves into devouring because it takes place in the most intimately relational physicality of our experience. And it is there where we visit violence upon ourselves and upon each other. You know, the the thing is, is that like uh, the person who was the perpetrator in Tara's story, you know, he didn't just just one day show up as evil incarnate However it was that he got to where he was by the time he found Tara and the others in the church that he abused, he'd had his own story of trauma. I don't know what it is, but you can guarantee that he'd had it, because nobody does those kinds of things without it being a reaction and response to coping with our own unresolved trauma and grief that he himself had experienced as some form of violation internally, relationally, emotionally by someone, because this is who we are. We're not told how it is that Cain ultimately decided to kill Abel. But you can be sure that Cain felt, sensed, smelled violence in the home because it had already happened. When Adam throws Eve out of the bus, in response to the wound that had been visited upon them violently by evil, we learn pretty quickly to just pass our trauma and our grief on down the line. So much so that by the time it gets to us, we're not even aware that it's not just me, it's me, it's my parents, it's my grandparents, it's generational in its nature. But the really good news about some of this, Pepper, is that we can uh, talk about this, and as, as you know, we said, like, no, this is not going to be a real feel good. episode today, and I I want our listeners to know that the reason that we don't, you know, that we don't flinch from this, we don't blink, we want to look trauma and grief straight in the eye, because in Genesis chapter 2, where the gods say, Let us, when the Holy Trinity says, let us make mankind in our image. We don't, don't for a minute think they didn't know that Good Friday was coming. And still they make. And God comes right up to evil on Golgotha. And says, I am willing to take all the trauma you can throw at me. And I'll absorb it. And I'll extinguish it. I was just saying to a friend yesterday, like earlier in Mark's gospel, before the crucifixion, Jesus says to Peter, when Peter is so angry and he cuts off, he cuts off the, you know, the high, the servant, the ear of the high priest servant when they come to take him. And he says, put your sword away. Do you not know? Do you think I can't call 12 legions? That's 60,000 troops. You think I can't call them? And you think when Jesus comes to Calvary just like Elisha with his servant when he asks God show my servant the armies of the Lord do you think that Jesus doesn't see 60,000 angels who are at the ready And their captain saying, you give us the word. And instead, what it's like to know that when I've got that kind of firepower waiting for me, there's not much I can't do. Including asking God to forgive everybody else. Because if I need to, I know what we could do here. And Jesus says to our grief, we are not leaving you alone with it. We're coming for it. We're going to look it straight in the eye. We're going to heal it. We're going to recommission it. And in fact, it will be your grief, your trauma, that will be the very source of the creation of beauty that right now you can't even begin to imagine. This is the God that we serve. It's great, Kurt.
0: You know, we have to... There's a, there's a whole thing of the shame that you talked about that's wrapped up and how much that integration can help wipe that Clean. Yeah. And, yeah. and how much evil doesn't want that to happen. Right. right. And how sometimes, as like you say in the book, people feel like they're going and dropping their bucket in the well over and over again and it just keeps coming up empty as far as people that they can do this with and really trust. Right. right. Um, and I'm grateful for you. Hmm. Mm. I'm grateful for our friendship mm. Mm. and for this time together. Yep. Thank you. This has been mm. a great, a great, mm. uh, and, and thank you mm. again for the book. I'm, mm. Um, mm. I'm running out of ink as I, as I mark it up, <laughs> but uh, it's well worth it.
1: Um, the soul of desire. Oh, man. Mm. Until next time, Kurt. <sighs> Until next time. Looking forward to it. Love you. Love you, man. You too. We'll see you. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simon. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend, tell all of your friends, and please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.